Welcome to episode 1348 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm John Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hey, Meg. Hello. We are doing an AL Central episode today. <laughs> Everyone just turned off their podcast app. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's an AL Central episode. We're doing an Indians preview, and we're also doing a White Sox preview with Zach Meisel and James Vegan, respectively. But that's all right. Every team deserves its moment in the spotlight, even if they are in the AL Central. One of these teams is actually good, and the other one is kind of interesting, at least. But you are recently returned from baseball yourself. You have witnessed baseball. So how is it? Still good? Still like baseball? Baseball's still good. Baseball's great. Um, I did not feel overloaded by baseball, which probably says more about um, my tolerance. <laughs> yeah, my tolerance for baseball necessarily than uh, baseball itself, but it's good. You know, it turns out that when you get to sit outside and it's warm and sunny and there's baseball, it's hard for that to be like a totally bad time. Yeah. So so what did you see? Because you were in Arizona for several days at the, the Fangraphs gathering, going to games all the time, as I understand it. Yeah, we, um, we decamped to Arizona uh, and imposed on the greater Phoenix area's hospitality for a couple of days. It was great. I mean, Thursday that I was there, uh, Eric Longenhagen and I basically saw the entire Mariner system top to bottom. We did... <laughs> Four Sorry. games. You know, uh, it's pr- it's pretty cool to finally get to watch Julio Rodriguez play baseball in the U.S. I'd been looking forward to that for, for quite a while. I might be excited about a couple of Mariners prospects, which feels very strange. But, you know, that was great. We have decided that the Texas Rangers may be an all-time, oh, that guy team. Mm, yeah. Uh, I think it happened like five or six times in the course of us watching the, the Rangers play the Padres. You know, Manny Machado looks good in a Padres uniform, can mm-hmm. confirm. Mm-hmm. That is my hot take. Let's see, what else did I see? Puig looks good in Red's Red. Kikuchi looked good for the Mariners, so that will be one fun pitching thing, which might be their only fun pitching thing yeah. uh, next season. And then we watched a, a fair amount of college baseball. We dragged we dragged some members of the Fangraphs staff out to see Grand Canyon University. We have a very large, new, shiny, lovely ballpark that didn't have a ton of people in it. But uh, we watched them play and then headed out to ASU. It was a number of guys who were pretty interesting for the upcoming draft. So it was good. Wow. You saw it all. Saw it all. Watched <laughs> a lot of baseball. Watched the Brewers play the White Sox on Monday. And then I think Arizona decided, Meg, you have done enough, and you should probably go <laughs> run Fangraphs.com so that it rained most of uh, most of Tuesday. Yeah, I reached that point with Arizona pretty quickly just because of my my delicate, <laughs> fair complexion does not so much agree with the being out in the sun. When I went to scout school in Arizona about five years ago or so, I was out there for two weeks that time, which was a lot of Arizona for me. And I, I don't know if I've even been back since. That was like I, I had my fill for a while, but there's no amount of sunscreen that I could possibly apply that would protect me. Did you wear a bucket hat while you were sitting in the scout <laughs> well, section? It was scouts. Yeah. Scout school, you have to wear, I think I wore a visor actually, at least oh, for, wow. <laughs> for part of that <laughs> period, which was a, a bold choice, but something scouts are known to do from time to time. 
I have, I have taken to counting the number of bucket hats on spring training broadcasts just to see if I can, and then trying to discern, they're not always scouts, they're often scouts, but they're not always scouts. So trying to discern which, which folks there are just fans hanging out thinking Mm -hmm. that, you know, bucket hats, great fashion statement and which, which of them are scouts and maybe making um, more practical choices, which given the state of my sunburned nose, I, (laughs) I now feel bad for ever making fun of them. I'm like, oh, these, these folks are just really smart. (laughs) Yeah, no, they know what they're doing. So you are looking forward, presumably, to getting up at some ungodly hour or staying up to some ungodly hour to watch the Mariners pretty soon? I haven't decided which I'm going to do. I think that I will probably sleep and then get up as opposed to trying to work my way through. (laughs) What time Uh, will it be where you are? What time will it be? What time time do those games start at local time? I I think I I figured out that I have to get up at like two in the morning. Yeah, that was what I was thinking because I was thinking it was five-ish my time. So (laughs) that's an awkward hour to watch baseball. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be quite early. I wonder how reliable a narrator I will be of that game's events. Mm -hmm. Probably pretty bad, right? Probably, (laughs) yeah. Well, it is nice to see baseball again because I think you said in your chat that despite all the negativity and all the problems with baseball, which do not go away when the games start, but you can at least banish them from your mind for a few innings at a time because actual games are going on and that will be nice. Yeah, it's a funny thing because on the one hand, it does lend itself to sort of temporarily forgetting, but I think it does reinforce the stakes in a pretty profound way because, you know, I don't expect that everyone necessarily engages with baseball, certainly not in the same way that like we do professionally, or even maybe to the same extent that we do in terms of our interest level, which probably can be properly characterized as somewhat extreme, but, you know, it's a pretty great thing. And it would be, you know, you you sit there and you're like, oh, a really nice sport. It would be a shame if something happened to it. (laughs) You know, we should probably figure this stuff out. It's mostly just money and the reward is getting to do this every year. So I think it does reinforce the urgency to, you know, think about these things in a way that is hopefully productive because it's it's sure great. It's sure a great time. Speaking of which, Williams Estadio hit a home run while we were recording this episode on Friday. That is his second home run of the spring. He now has 38 at-bats, and I could say he has 38 plate appearances because that would also be accurate because he has not struck out and he has not walked. So he is doing his Williams Estadio thing. And as I understand it, he is at least looking like a likely candidate for the opening day roster because Miguel Sano is hurt for April at least, I think. And Estadio has not been tearing it up, but he's been doing all right. And I think there's a spot for him, I hope. And he was playing left field on Friday. He's played some third base. He's played all over the place. And my friend Zach Cram from The Ringer was telling me the other day that he is actually the best projected catcher in the AL Central by war per 600 plate appearances, which is maybe a commentary on AL Central catchers, except that he is actually the 13th best catcher in all baseball. And if you don't count Salvador Perez, who is out for the year, he's 12th best. So again, legitimately good, I think, if he were allowed to play. We have to decide who at Fangraphs is going to assume the SDO yeah. beat because <laughs> it's a very it's a full time job and and a you know a weighty responsibility right the <laughs> right. hopes and dreams of so many people the joy that so many experience in the sport has now transferred to this one individual <laughs> we're gonna have to think very long and hard about who who gets to assume that mantle because I think it's gonna yeah. be important yeah so. 
Baseball is changing. We've got to talk about some baseball changes, which is something that we've talked about on this podcast before because some of these changes have been rumored. But on Thursday, a bunch of them were actually announced. Some of them will be going into effect this season. Some of them will be going into effect next season. Some of them are somewhat major. Some of them are almost insignificant. And a lot of them are kind of unrelated. So it's hard to sum all of them up in one neat little package. But I tried to in an article. And I think my takeaway, and we can get into some of these specific measures, but I think in general, these are not likely to overturn baseball and make baseball unrecognizable and of course they have upset some people because every time you tinker with anything about baseball someone gets upset but I think once the games actually start they will not be affected in any profound way really so to me I think these measures sort of send a signal send a message an important one perhaps that MLB and the Players Association, which jointly agreed or at least resigned themselves to these changes, are willing to make some actual moves here instead of just talking about it, which seems to be the case every spring. They're actually doing some things, and even though I don't expect most of these things to really arrest any of the trends we've been talking about, some of the worrisome ones, they're at least intended to maybe stop the proliferation of strikeouts or position player pitchers or whatever. There are a bunch of trends here that are theoretically addressed by these changes that won't be reversed, but like maybe the rise will be halted, or at least it sort of sends the signal that, hey, we're paying attention and we're kind of worried about these things. And now we're actually starting to do something about it along with all of the Atlantic League experiments that will be going on as well. Yeah, I think that, you know, to that end, the the changes that they made to the injured list and the option period for pitchers seemed the most, hey, we're actually watching what you guys are up to of all of yeah. these changes. It's like, hey, Dodgers, you don't get to continue to manipulate this um, yeah. with quite as much abandon as you have. I actually thought of you almost immediately and uh, you know, it won't have any significant effect until 2020, but I am worried about what this two-way designation is going to do to your enjoyment of Shohei Otani. <laughs> I know. There were some confusingly worded parts of yes. that announcement that I think if you or I had, had gotten a look at that before that, we, we would have made some edits in the margins possibly yes. <laughs> for, for clarity. But uh, yeah, the, it seems like the two-way, you have to designate players as two-way players, but they don't qualify unless they have already pitched 20 innings or started 20 games at a non-pitching position in either that season or the previous season, which means that because Otani will almost certainly not be pitching this year, he won't be eligible to be a two-way player when 2020 starts. So as I understand it, that means it doesn't mean that the Angels are at a disadvantage, I don't think, but it means they won't get the advantage of getting to use him as a two-way player. So they'll have to designate him as either a, a hitter or a pitcher, which means that he would have to be limited to certain outings if they designated him as a, a position player, because that's part of the rules too. If you're a position player pitcher, you can only pitch at certain times now. So basically... It won't be, I guess, until 2021 unless I'm misinterpreting how this works because it's right. kind of hard to tell. I wonder if they will add an exemption yeah. allowing for reclassification sort of midseason for guys who were injured a certain number of days in one of their capacities. Like it's not his fault that he's not going to be able to pitch. And they could, I suppose, start him as a 
classify him as a pitcher first um, Mm -hmm. because he'll already have the requisite number of plate appearances from the prior year and then have him pitch and then reclassify him midway through as a two-way. I feel like they should do that. We should send that edit to them because (laughs) we all want Otani all the time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So No one benefits from not having Otani be able to to do his thing, both of his things. Yeah. So, yeah, I I mean, I think the measure here that's getting the most attention is the new prohibition on pitchers facing fewer than three batters without – ending an inning. So uh, this is, I think, regarded by some people as overly intrusive, as handcuffing managers, as suppressing strategy, that they should just let everyone sort this out for themselves. And as I wrote with some help from Baseball References, Dan Hirsch, I think this is less significant than most people might think, than I thought even before I saw the numbers. So only 4.7% of all relief appearances last year would have been prohibited by this new guideline that will be going into effect in 2020, which is actually the lowest rate since 1985. So teams are already kind of deciding voluntarily not to do this. They're having pitchers who can go through a lineup once or pitch more than one inning as opposed to the the Randy Choate type situational guy who's going to kind of get erased by this change. So I think it's kind of on the way out anyway. This is something that happened last year once every 3.2 games or 6.4 team games. So that's basically 25 times per team per season. So I, I think it's less noticeable than you might think. And There already was a rule on the books, technically, that you have to face one batter. So now it's three batters instead of one batter. So it's kind of just an extension of the rule that already existed. It's definitely more intrusive, obviously, but I don't mind it because I kind of hate the mid-inning pitching change after facing one or two batters. And it happened 761 times last year, and I don't think I will miss it very much. Yeah, and I, I suppose that it it all depends a little bit on the risk tolerance of the manager because the other provision is that they can, you know, it's three batters or the end of the inning. Mm-hmm. So if you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna gamble a little bit, yeah. it might not change your your usage very much at all as long as you're willing to have that loogie, then go another two. But um, right. yeah, I I don't know that I'm overly fussed about it either. I think that of all the sort of active roster provisions that they changed and you know are are going to implement the reduction of rosters in September is the thing that I mm-hmm. I'm just curious to see how it plays out. I I should go back and look. I'm sure that we have this in the database somewhere. I wonder how many rosters in any given year actually even approach the 40 number. Yeah. Like I remember seeing pictures of the dugout in Philly last year because Kepler's Kepler. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wonder how often it's really as big an issue as we sort of joke about it being in terms of roster bloat. And I don't know, it's nice to let those guys come up and make big league money for a little bit and now for us to get to look at them. So I'm more concerned and concern is like a wild exaggeration (laughs) of how fussed I am about any of this about that than the the three uh, batter rule. Which I'm sure will lead to some terrific strategy mistakes that we're all going to get to enjoy. So, you know, this might be entertaining, just not in a way that baseball is really anticipating. Yeah. In theory, maybe pitchers will have to pace themselves a little more. Maybe you'll leave starters in a little longer, or at least think about doing that. Maybe guys won't throw max effort all the time. Maybe it will help arrest the rise of strikeouts just a little bit. Yeah. My only concern about it is that maybe it 
does get rid of some very rare but also cool strategic things like i think most of the strategy i'm not going to miss because it's just going to be like oh lefty's up i'm going to bring in the lefty oh righty's up now going to bring in the righty it's strategy i guess but it's not interesting it's just kind of this like push button thing that everyone can play along with at home but in theory, this gets rid of the Curly Ogden Wade Miley gambit that mm-hmm. we saw Craig Council use with the Brewers last year, where you bring in a starter for one guy and, and then you just bring in an opposite handed starter to confuse everyone and make everyone mad. I like that. Obviously, doesn't really happen ever, but it could. And then the other one is the Waxahachi swap, as it has been called, which I'm not clear on whether this definitely does away with that yeah i wasn't either (laughs) yeah that's again another place where the language makes it tough to tell but something like what the rays did last year like we see teams do from time to time where a a pitcher will pitch and then he'll move to a corner outfield spot or something or if you're the rays like a, a corner infield spot and then come back just to not have to remove the guy from the game but preserve the platoon advantage. So not sure if that is definitely outlawed here because I guess it depends on whether you can face three guys non-consecutively or not. So Right. Yeah, it doesn't I, I was I was quite unclear on that because it's not as if he then, you know, is removed and is ineligible to return. Like you're you're doing a little bit of fancy yeah. fancy business to keep him in <laughs> right. there. Doing that yeah. on purpose. So I don't know. I think that I like that all of the the, the rules that have the um, most work to do in terms of a, an editor getting um, their hands on them <laughs> and fixing them aren't due until twenty twenty. And so we have That's time true. for them to for this great new um, joint committee to clarify. Yeah. First draft. Yeah, hopefully there's an editor on the joint committee who can help with the presentation <laughs> of these words and make it a little yeah. clearer for all of us. I also wonder whether we'll see more intentional walks, which are at an all-time low right now. But I could imagine like, if you do need to have sure. a guy face three batters, I assume an intentional walk counts as a batter faced, even though you don't actually face him. So maybe managers will be more tempted to bring in someone to face two same-sided hitters and then walk a third guy and then bring someone in. I, I could see that happening. I don't know. But yeah, yeah I, I think it's fairly minor and it doesn't like the f- philosophy of it doesn't bother me so much. Like I, I don't like the shift stuff, which fortunately is not part of this because that feels too much like meddling and also unnecessary and probably ineffective, but also just like it seems like too much. Like we haven't shown yet that there's no counter to this. Like hitters could bunt, they could go the other way, whatever. This, I don't know that there is a a counter to. We're at 13 consecutive seasons now of rising strikeout rate. We're seeing more and more pitchers used constantly. And these are like century long trends. So I feel like every now and then you kind of need to slap pitchers wrists and be like, nope, you can't do this anymore. And I don't think anyone's going to miss, you know, you can still have 13 on your roster, but having deeper benches could be more fun. I think that this qualifies much more as like, you know, you're trimming up the sideburns rather than giving someone a really dramatic haircut. And I think it Mm -hmm. strikes a good balance between the sort of, you know, care and affection that we want the league and the players association to have for the game versus the stuff that just reads as them not giving one side or the other sufficient time to adjust their strategy or, you know, adjust player development or what have you. So I, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty okay with it. I think yeah. I'm okay with it. Yeah, me too. Right. And I like that the roster's expanding, which yeah. is uh, 
I think we all kind of saw that coming, but it's still a, a departure. The 25-man active roster has been around for like a century with some departures every now and then, but no one loses their jobs. It's just an extra person added, and that person will probably not be allowed to be a pitcher. So right. maybe we'll actually get to see some pinch hitters again, or maybe you can be on a big league bench without playing seven positions. So that's kind of nice, I think. That's another thing where it's like it's not really reversing things so much, but it's saying, okay, we're going to draw the line here. Like, this is getting out of hand. So let's just bring back some strategy there and some offense and actually be able to pinch hit for the guy who can't hit because you have someone on your bench. Well, and I like the idea that this maybe, you know, we've seen increasing pitcher specialization. This actually, as you're saying, maybe allows for some specialization on the position player side. Like, maybe we get that really fast guy yeah. Whose whose main purpose there is just to run, and they didn't have room for him before because they had to worry about it. But now, you know, you can maybe this extends Billy Hamilton's career by like <laughs> another five years. He can just be that guy who comes in and is really freaking fast. I mean, mm-hmm. I I like that it does potentially eliminate a couple of strategic choices on the on the pitching side, but I think that it opens up some possibilities on the hitting side that could be really right. cool. Yeah, so the players are obviously happy to get an extra roster spot on each team, but then they have to sacrifice the extra roster spots in September, which goes down from a max of 40 to 28. And other than economic ramifications, I'm pretty okay with this too. Like it's, I guess it's it's kind of nice to like be able to make more cups of coffee for guys who yeah. will never be back otherwise. Like it's it makes more dreams come true when you can expand the roster to 40 and bring in some guy you'll never see again for three games, and he can say he made the big leagues, and that makes everyone happy. But on the other hand, the games get longer, they get sort of sloppier. It's kind of weird to be in the middle of pennant races and. Have have one team with more players than the other team and it's just a different set of circumstances than you have for the first five months of the season which just has always seemed like a strange and illogical way to settle the season so in that way i'm not sorry to see the 40-man active roster go maybe the reason that i've always been like completely unbothered by that is that i have not often watched um meaningful september <laughs> baseball <laughs> <laughs> that could be or at least not one baseball that i'm emotionally invested in in quite the right, right way <laughs> yeah <laughs> Then there's some other ones that are just like, okay, whatever, like mound visits are going from six to five. And I asked an MLB person and he told me that only 33 times all of last season in nine inning games did a team use all of its six mound visits. So this is not really going to affect things. Along similar lines, there's a new restriction on when you can use position players as pitchers. So you can only use them in extra innings or when you're winning or losing by more than six runs. But of the 65 non-Otan position player pitcher appearances last year only five of them would have been prohibited by that rule all where a team was trailing by six runs exactly so i think this is more about stopping the spread of position player pitching than it is actually rolling it back at all there's only going to be one trade deadline which I feel like we're the big beneficiaries of this because we no longer have to explain what waivers are or like pretend to know what waivers are or how that whole August process works. So now July 31st is just the trade deadline. And obviously it was already the main event trading wise. So I guess the idea here is that it will be a little more exciting and maybe teams will feel more pressure to do stuff over the winter because they can't do stuff in August and still had those players to their playoff rosters. So 
I don't know if this is actually going to produce a, a noticeable difference, but we'll see. Yeah, I don't know that it'll matter all that much, although I do like the idea of us theoretically sort of rewarding teams for having good depth already established. Yeah. I think that, you know, whether it actually does that remains to be seen, but I think that any move that, you know, the league can make to try to move teams toward thinking about like you should be winning and like right now is a is probably a positive development. So yeah. if this is the precursor to other moves sort of in similar vein as we get closer to a new CBA, I think that that's all for the better. So we'll have yeah. to see how that goes. But And you mentioned the shuffling at the back of bullpen stuff mm-hmm. and, and that it's kind of getting into the weeds, but it, it also matters that it's pretty important yeah. and it's part of some of these annoying trends that we're talking about all the time these days. Gerald Schiffman just wrote a couple of good pieces for Baseball Prospectus kind of chronicling the rise of the guy who is just rotating back and forth from AAA to the majors all season long. And between, I think it was 2009 and 2018, that type of move more than doubled. And so what you get is just a bunch of like anonymous relievers that no one knows because they show up for a couple games and then they disappear again and they're rested because they're coming up fresh or relatively fresh from the minors. So maybe that leads to more strikeouts. Hitters have never seen them before. And there's also an economic aspect to this because I think it just concentrates more playing time, especially innings in the hands of pitchers who are making the major league minimum. So yeah, it's just, it's not a great thing to just, there've been so many pitchers that it's kind of hard to know who's in your team's bullpen at any point. And, and so by changing these couple of rules, basically the IL for pitchers is going back from 15 days to 10 days. And then the option period is also going from 10 to 15 so that when you send someone down, you have to wait longer before recalling him. So it's kind of, is something that affects like the least known players in the majors and yet I think it is somewhat important. Yeah, and I think that um when when Dan Zimborski wrote about this for for us at Fangraphs today, he he made a good point. He made several good points, but one of the um the points that I sort of appreciated and I hadn't quite thought about it this way is that you know, I like it when teams use weird, funky strategy in games as a way to press an advantage. And I think those machinations are fair game and we want, you know, that to be sort of the purview and, and space where we see teams trying to win in ways that are unexpected. I don't like when that when rules that are meant to protect sort of player health become part of that, you know, bit of strategy. And so I think yeah. having a clean, cleaner separation um, between those things is probably to everyone's benefit because it's, it's awfully tempting and it's probably something that we really shouldn't be opening up as a, as a potential avenue for strategy. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think that that's a, a good move. Yeah. Can I tell you my, my favorite potential part of this that we will probably yes. only see just one time Please and do. then, and then it'll go away. You know, th- we've learned today that they will be, they being MLB will sort of be on the lookout for illness fakers <laughs> right. and injury fakers. And mm-hmm. there, there is a potential for, um, you know, being fined or penalized in some way. And that's very silly. And, and <laughs> I doubt strongly that we're going to see any convincing performances, but I hope we see one. I hope we see just one guy, at least, uh, at least try. And then I don't know how we'd find out about it later. We're going to need some very industrious beat writers, but I want there to be one time where it worked, where a guy just like really, really gave it his all, gave an Oscar worthy performance. And then we never saw it again. Yeah, I have so too. It seems like it would be doable because like 
who's to say that your elbow doesn't hurt yeah. or whatever? And it's not like they have to put you on the IL after. It's just like, well, my elbow hurt and yeah. that doesn't because I'm a pitcher and that's always happening. <laughs> so I don't know how you police that exactly, but it seems like something that could be abused potentially. Could be. I tend to think that it will not be mm-hmm. because the scrutiny around guys who are removed earlier than they ought to be, I think will yeah. be fairly Might high. Not be worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not worth it, but I want it to happen at least once. <laughs> right. And we've covered just about all of it. There's some all-star game stuff and some home run derby stuff, and I can't bring myself to care over much about those things, but... yeah. I don't hate the idea of seeing Joey Gallo in the home run derby and no. a million dollar prize might incentivize him. He says he's thinking about it. Yeah. So Aaron Judge good. says that he's not thinking about yeah. it. I guess he already won one. So yeah. I, eh, whatever. Once he won one. Yeah. Everyone's worried about screwing up their swings. And I guess if you're really worried about that, then even a million dollars may not be enough incentive to get you to do that. So we should mention also that some of these things we've talked about are partly intended to shorten time of game, but more explicitly intended to shorten games, MLB is limiting the time between innings to two minutes, which is down from 2.05 for local games and 2.25 for national games, and they might limit it an additional five seconds the following season. That's actually kind of cool. I'm sort of surprised that MLB is sacrificing commercial time. Granted, I don't think that is the primary cause for the slowdown in game times. As Grant Brisby has shown, it's really the mid-inning stuff that is slowing the games down. But every little bit helps, and that MLB is kind of putting its money where its mouth is there is somewhat impressive because the pitch clock has been tabled for the duration of this CBA as a condition of all these other agreements. So maybe we'll just end up seeing more ads during the action, like between pitches as we did during the playoffs last year. Or maybe there will be more ads on uniforms or who knows what. But that's something that's at least a gesture to show that they're serious. The other thing I I thought maybe the, the most encouraging part Part of this whole thing was something that was not a specific rule change, but was just like an agreement to keep talking about stuff, which seems good. Like not only just the the joint editing committee that we already (laughs) talked about, the copy editing committee and uh, the rules change discussion committee, which is good that they'll keep paying attention to all these things, but also a commitment to talk about CBA stuff and see if they can figure that out. And I don't have any idea how serious or productive those discussions will be, but given how many sticking points there are and just how high the the rhetoric and the ire seems to be on both sides or at least one side seems like a good thing to start early just to see if they can get on the same page and if they can be in the same room and and talk at least that seems like it can't hurt and everyone wants to avoid a work stoppage of of some kind if they can accomplish their aims and maybe this makes that a little more likely i don't know Yeah, I'm not sure. I always am conflicted about that because on the one hand, I don't, you know, a union's job is to be adversarial sometimes. So Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily want the union to prioritize like labor peace over other stuff that they need to do for their members. But I think you're right that having a 
having a moment to talk about these things sort of off cycle, you know, they should do it when baseball's happening and we're all happy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, I think it could give an opportunity to find their way to compromise on some things and at least prioritize um, for both parties the stuff that's going to be really contentious in that negotiation so, you know, folks can start getting their ducks in a row early. But yeah, I don't, having managed Fangrass through this slow offseason, I appreciate the reasons why a, a labor stoppage may be very necessary, but I do not look forward to one. So <laughs> right. this this could be better. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think we covered all the main stuff there, and this will be an ongoing conversation. But you mentioned managing fan graphs, and you've been doing a lot of fan graphs managing lately. Yeah. You have hired a whole lot of people, yep. which uh, when I was at BP and, and that was my job, that was like my favorite part of the job in a way, just like being able to give people opportunities and, and discover them for myself and see what they could do. On the other hand, I don't think I ever had to sift through 500 <laughs> applications and, and do interviews. So you hired six people and yes. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do and I want to hear about the process of sure. hiring like one out of a hundred people who applied. Yes. When we were in Arizona, David Appleman and I compared our phone logs <laughs> and I realized that I managed to talk to David 12 times on the day that Bryce Harper signed and none of those calls were about Bryce Harper. Not a single one of those calls was about him. Not even one. Uh, so yeah, uh, David and I became famous phone friends. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a process that we do enjoy and take really seriously. And so part of why it takes so long is that you don't want to, you know, you don't want to miss on anyone or give someone's application uh, less attention than it deserves because you're tired or whatever. So mm -hmm. it is quite a process. We read a lot of baseball writing. I think that um, we were really excited about the mix of folks who we brought on because some of the names are names that are going to be familiar to to this listening audience and to the Fangraphs audience. Like people, mm -hmm. you know, know Sungmin Kim. They know Rachel, who's going to in June be assuming the the reins at THT. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Octavio Hernandez is known yeah. to. A fair number of folks, but it All also three of those effectively wild guests yeah. in the fairly recent past. Yeah, yeah. But some of the names are are a little less familiar. I mean, uh, Devin Fink has been doing this for a shockingly long time as a nineteen year old. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I don't know how many folks knew his work. Ben Clemens is pretty new to the scene, and so is Audrey Stark. So, I I think we were excited by that mix of slightly more established and then uh, newer people or folks who maybe didn't have the audience that we think that they deserve and that we mm -hmm. hope they'll get at Fangraphs. And now I'm excited to take a little break from <laughs> resume review, but we're we're really excited by the, the crew that we were able to assemble here. And um, I think apart from people being surprised by how shockingly young Devin is and Rachel for that matter, the reader response has been really lovely for the most part. So they will start off on a good foot and I'm really excited to see what they do. Yeah. Well, how do you balance the track record versus wanting to give people opportunities? Because that seems like maybe the most difficult thing. Like it's great if you can hire Jay Jaffe or Dan Zimborski, guys with 20-year track records. They're excellent, but you also want to bring in some new blood and establish yeah. new people and give people a platform. 
And yet that is kind of a a risk, I suppose, as an editor, if the person doesn't have a long track record, because so much of this is about not just can you write one good article, but then can you write another one after that? And uh, that can be hard even for the writer to know if they can do that, let alone the editor. So I I guess you've you've gotten a mix of, of both here in a sense, but how did you think about that as you were weighing applications? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I'm going to just like really overtax a baseball metaphor here. I feel like Fangraphs has this incredible core. You know, we we miss Jeff, obviously, but um, the, the group that remains since Jeff's departure is really well established. We know what we have. They produce excellent work. And so I think we felt a little bit freer to sort of take a look at a range of of people for the contributor roles, because once you realize that, like we've talked about in Gchat, like, you know, Jeff isn't in this applicant pool, but like, I don't know, one of these people might grow into that. Mm -hmm. Um, And once you stop trying to replace Jeff and just are looking at interesting writers and voices, I think that it allows you to be much more open to people who you should absolutely consider because you're not thinking of them as, you know, a guy who can throw 200 innings right away. You're you're trying to find someone with upside, with voice. Um, I think one thing I would say, and I, I hope this isn't discouraging to anyone who applied, you know, a lot of baseball, online baseball writing can can feel kind of the same mm-hmm. and the voice can be hit or miss. There was, again, as we talked about, there were a lot of people who wanted to sound like Jeff um, <laughs> or or you or Sam or Rachel or Emma Bachelary. It was very strange to be able to sort of categorize some of the um, writing samples we saw by existing baseball writers. So I think that it's tricky. You know, we understand that there's going to be an ebb and flow in production. And I think what we're trying to do with this group uh, and with all of our hires is find people who have something to say and say in an interesting way. And, you know, there's a baseline of baseball expertise that I think we need everyone to demonstrate uh, in their applications. And so for people who applied who maybe weren't hired, one thing I might recommend is all of your your clips don't have to be baseball, but you should have some you should be able to demonstrate baseball expertise and some, Mm -hmm. you know, some folks submitted stuff where like the copy was really interesting, but um, we need to to know, you know, about baseball. So, (laughs) uh, you know, it's tricky. We're going to see how well we did. You know, I have a lot of confidence in all of these folks, but it is also my first real hiring process at Fangraphs. So I will not grade our draft (laughs) right after it happened. (laughs) Um, But we also, you know, aren't, uh, I I think that some of these hires demonstrate that Fangraphs is opposed to service time manipulation, or we might be holding Devin back for longer, (laughs) and Rachel too, for that matter. Uh, It's a good group. So I'm excited to see what they do. Yep, me too. I'm sure they're going to be great. Yeah. So is there anything else? We talked a lot. We had meant last week to talk about Jessica Mendoza. I don't know whether that ship has sailed or whether you still want to because you you had some tweets about it. I did have some tweets. (laughs) I like... I don't know. It's, I think that, um, we, we can maybe take it away from that specific case. I, I would be interested in us as an industry thinking more critically about conflicts and, and kind of the potential issues that they raise in reporting. And I think that part of this too is that like Jessica Mendoza seems quite qualified to me. And it seems, you know, I don't know what kind of TV money she's getting at ESPN, but if the Mets wanted to hire, 
Jessica Mendoza, they should have just like made a compelling offer to work for the Mets that didn't mm-hmm. have this like double duty. So I don't know. I think that the discourse around it was sort of frustrating because it was hard to separate out the people who were opposed to her appointment because they were worried about conflicts from the people who maybe were like, eh, softball player. Right. <laughs> right. So that was silly, but I don't know. I mean, I'm sure she'll be great. Her role does seem appreciably different from the role that, you know, someone like Alex Rodriguez right. has, where he's going to Florida for two weeks to say hi to a bunch yeah. of 19 year old kids. So I'm, I'm really curious to see uh, how, how the broadcast deals with that as a potential source of conflict because her role does seem quite a bit more meaningful than than the role that other broadcasters have uh, yeah. with teams they used to play for. Right. That was the part that sort of surprised me when I saw the description of her job and it sounded like your typical front office analyst, basically, more so than your former player who is more of a, you know, ambassador role kind of or right. an instructor role. Maybe that's some bias on my part, just assuming that that's what those jobs entail. There's probably some aspect of player evaluation that goes into at least some of those jobs. But yeah, I mean, like I, I tend to assume that, you know, they're going to put on a uniform in spring training or they're going to show up at an event or something. And and to some extent, I guess I, I just assume that they're biased in a way. Like when right. when David Ortiz is calling a Red Sox game, like he's not pretending to be no. impartial. He's like no. out there in the outfield and like everyone's standing behind him chanting Poppy and he's like hamming it up. It's, <laughs> I'm not like expecting journalistic integrity necessarily from him. So in a way, it, it concerns me less because I look at something like a Sunday night baseball broadcast as just entertainment. Entertainment, more so, you know, something to be on while I'm watching the game. I, I mean, I guess maybe that's me. A, a lot of people probably do get their baseball information and and trust those broadcasters to tell them accurate things about baseball. But it's like the broadcast that has featured Joe Morgan and John Cruck. And I, I just, I don't know, I'm not that concerned <laughs> that she might say something that is like slightly more positive toward the Mets than she might otherwise. But maybe I should be more concerned about that. I don't know. It's just... It's not something I get that exercised about. I I could see like in a different role, it could potentially be a problem, but I I don't know. I I wouldn't want her to be deprived of the platform that she has on ESPN or the opportunity to work in a front office because those are like both places where people like Jessica Mendoza are underrepresented. And so it's kind of cool that she can do both, but it is also kind of a conflict. (laughs) So, yeah, I I don't, I guess it's going to remain to be seen how much of an issue it actually poses, but yeah, I don't know. I, I agree with, with you that the fact that the Mets who, you know, have some work to do in terms of their front office diversity seem to be taking it, you know, more seriously, at least this hire would seem to demonstrate that is a really encouraging sign. I guess I just hope that, you know, the splashiness of it doesn't suggest that it's maybe less serious than we would want it to be, because Mm -hmm. there is some, you know, PR value to hiring a person with a with a known name. So I don't know, we're going to see but, you know, She's going to be at winter meetings. She's going to be doing all sorts of things that front office people do. So um, I I think we'll have, you know, and we'll have a whole season of broadcast. So we'll get a sense of it pretty quickly, I imagine. 
Yeah, I'd probably be more worried about it if I were the Mets than if I were ESPN (laughs) because she'll probably be privy to information that they would not want public and she has a a very large microphone to broadcast information to and I would be semi-concerned that, you know, something might slip out on live TV that shouldn't have. So that that would be something that crossed my mind but evidently it, it does not bother them too much it's it's like you know like if if the rays had hired jeff and said hey keep doing the podcast that uh that would have been a problem because he, yeah. a jeff would have known things from his time with the rays that he would not have been able to share or might have inadvertently shared and also everyone would doubt the integrity of what jeff was saying and whether he was just like a rays sleeper cell who was trying <laughs> to just convince everyone that the rays are the greatest baseball team so that would not work for multiple reasons so it's you know sort of like that yeah I did have someone text me after the announcement came out. They're like, oh, so is Jeff coming back to Fangraphs now? Is that what this means? He just gets to come back? <laughs> right. um, yeah. It, uh... <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that. That's not what it means. <laughs> no. All right. So we'll take a quick break now. We've got a lot of previewing and talking about the AL Central to get to. So we'll be back in just a moment with Zach Meisel of The Athletic to talk about the Indians, followed by James Vegan to talk about the White Sox. Let me So we are joined now by Zach Meisel. He is a senior writer for The Athletic. He covers the Cleveland Indians. Hey, Zach. How's it going? Doing well, guys. How are you? Going okay. So I have a lot of questions for you, but I guess we'll start by asking about the general direction or directionlessness of the Indians this offseason. It was not an inspiring winter for this team and seemed like they spent a lot of it either trading guys or trying to trade guys and not ending up trading them, not really signing a whole lot of people. What were the marching orders as far as you can tell for the front office this winter? Was it, hey, save some money? Yeah, it was. And it the timing of it is so strange. As the calendar flipped to October of 2017, the Indians had just rattled off 22 wins in a row. They won 102 games. They were the the Vegas favorites to win the World Series. And, you know, everything seemed like if you could just capture that moment, that's what Cleveland fans had been dreaming for their baseball team for decades. And then a year later, they get swept by the Astros. It wasn't even a competitive series, really. And at no point last season did the Indians ever click. And it's it's almost like, you know, you, you start to wonder, you know, was that 2016 missed opportunity when they led the Cubs in the World Series? Is, was that going to be their best chance? And I think, you know, you never know what's going to happen in October, of course. But just on paper, it looks like maybe that was um, because they cut about 20 million or so off their payroll. They, they ended last year around 142, 142 million, which was in the middle of the pack. Attendance was like the top of the lower third in baseball. So ownership wanted to cut payroll. The front office knew there were certain ways they could do it. Selling high on Jan Gomes was one way to clear seven plus million dollars, but it, they were going to have to get creative. So that's why, from the get go, you know, it seemed like the second the World Series ended, you started hearing rumors floated out there about potentially trading a starting pitcher. 
Corey Kluber, you could save $17 million that way. Trevor Bauer is going to make $13 million. They thought about trading him. So, you know, it, it's tough and it's rare where you find a team that seems to still have, I mean, they have such a good nucleus of core players, two MVP candidates, one of the best rotations, really, really good back-end reliever. And yet they got worse over the offseason. Like that, that's, it's strange. And so it was, it was weird to cover and try to keep tabs on exactly what the front office was thinking, what ownership was thinking. And we sit here with the season about to start and, you know, it's, they're relying on a lot of young, inexpensive players to fill the holes where some of those, those better paid veterans were in the last few seasons. And so if the marching orders were not to spend or, or to spend less, was that, out of necessity or is this ownership cheapness i mean should the indians come under the same criticism that say the pirates do for instance or obviously there have been attendance problems even when the team has been good and there's the market size issue and and all of that and cleveland just shrinking in general and i mean do they really have to do this or is it kind of like given the skyrocketing franchise values all over the game and all of the extra payouts and all of this they are pocketing some of this money that they're saving. Are, are you able to tell? Because, of course, the, the books are not out there for all of us to peruse. Right. And, and that's, that's what makes this tough. You know, it's, it's funny because every spring, uh, the owner, Paul Dolan, will sit down for a story or two. And, and you know, you're never really going to get the answers you want from that. And you're never going to really know what their, their gains and losses are. I mean, we're, you, you are forced to either just take him by his word or, not to believe what he says. And I think there's a large contingent of Indians fans who do both of those things. And it, it's difficult. And, and I think the, the overriding theme here is that no matter what the truth is, it's a really tough message to sell your fan base. When you made game seven of the world series in 2016, you were one of the best, if not the best teams in baseball during the 2017 season. And then 2018, things started to slip a little bit, but you still have all this talent, and yet you're not, I mean, it, it, you can't say that they're trying to win at all costs because they're not doing that. So it's not like they need to be playing for Bryce Harper necessarily or Manny Machado, but they weren't even able to fill some of these holes with, with fringe guys. I mean, there were a number of relievers who signed for three, four, five million dollars $5 You know, someone like Marwin Gonzalez or Mike Moustakis, someone who could have you know, giving them a little bit more depth in the infield and, and then transitive property help their outfield um, by moving someone to the outfield. Like things like that, where they have clear holes and they just sat on their hands because that's what they were told to do. It's, it's frustrating to the fan base and it makes you think, okay, well, if, if you had to slash payroll this off season, can't imagine it's going to get much better as, as you move forward here. So it's, it's a difficult thing to sell. I know the Indians feel like they're, they have a, just a, a winless battle here from a PR standpoint. And, and there's, you know, it's weird too. They're hosting the all-star game this year. You know, you'd, you'd think it would, you'd have an influx of fans who, who want to buy season tickets knowing maybe they can get first dibs on, on all-star game tickets. And, and it's, you know, it's 25 years since, since progressive field was built and opened and they're going to be celebrating that. It's, it's a strange time in a town where you've had three really good years in a row. You haven't won a world series, but you have, the league's longest world series drought and yet i think the mood from the fan base around the team is like we want to invest but we just we need to see 100 percent effort from from front office and ownership and and it's not there 
think one of the places, as, as you mentioned, sort of alluded to that we maybe expected that they would spend money is in that outfield, which if we want to uh, review is going to likely um, involve a lot of time from you know, Jordan Luplau and a hopefully healthy and revived Leonis Martin, but also Tyler Naquin. This is not um, a, a Sterling group uh, if we're looking at projections in terms of how these guys are anticipated to do. Is there any reason for optimism beyond what the projections say, or is this a place where you might anticipate them trying to make some kind of upgrade uh, as they go through the season and into the trade deadline? Yeah, I think the only optimism would come from the unknown, which isn't optimism until you really see it transpire on the field. I mean, it's, I think Hanley Ramirez will probably make the team and that'll push Jake Bowers to left field. That kind of reduces the question marks in the outfield by one, I guess. Leonis Martin, you know, it's weird to think everything he went through last year where he was literally in a hospital bed fighting for his life. And he is the outfielder you're relying on the most for like the known quantity of what he can provide you. It's, it's twisted. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's just going to be a matter of like, they have a handful of younger guys who aren't proven Tyler Naquin, Oscar Mercado, Greg Allen, uh, Jordan Luplo. And I think they're just going to cycle through these guys until they find someone who can just show some modicum of consistency. You know, the, the, the weird thing about the Indians and they get away with this a little bit because the division is so non-competitive for the most part is they have, opportunities to use the regular season as a trial and error period. I think they're going to do the same thing in the bullpen where they have a huge collection of guys, a lot of them with some upside, but they just, they're unproven and we don't know if they're capable of handling the seventh or the eighth inning. And they're just going to have to throw guys out there and and see if anyone works. And and then you take what works and you keep doing that. And the people who don't work, go back to triple a and call up new guys who you want to see try out on the field too. So it's, it's weird. And it, again, it's weird that this team that's been in the playoffs three straight years and is still picked to be in the playoffs again in 2019 is going through something like this. Yeah, that's the thing. We're talking about how they either haven't done anything or they've shed good players. And yet, I'm looking at the baseball prospectus playoff odds right now, and the Indians have the highest odds of winning their division of any team in baseball, which has less to do with them than it does with all of the other teams in that division. But In a sense, you can understand why they don't feel the urgency to upgrade because they're just sitting pretty right now. I mean, maybe someone will push them a little more than someone did last year. Maybe the the Twins will have their act together a, a bit more, but it's really hard to see how they lose this division. And so when you're talking about signing a big free agent or something, you're really talking about, is this player going to make the difference between us getting through this five-game series or this seven-game series or not? And it's just so impossible to predict that. And there's it's just subject to so much randomness that if you're talking about a big investment for someone, I can see why there would just be a little less pressure on them to make that type of move than there would be for other teams. So I don't know. Is there any way to imagine an alternate reality where there were actual other good teams in this division? Do you think the (laughs) the Indians would be acting any differently than they are? I don't think so. You know, I I think and like the front office guys are smart and, and they understand the situation. And, you know, some of this is tough to quantify. Like, I think just my opinion Last year, they never clicked. They never, like, you didn't go into October thinking, all right, this is a team that has it figured out um, and I like their chances. Like, it was, 
it was just weird. They, they slogged through the whole season and, and I, they were never challenged. And I actually think, I think the twins will challenge them this year. And I think that'll be good for them. But I, I think the front office, you know, that they, they understand the position they're in. And it's funny, like no one in Cleveland cares about another division title because we know the landscape of the division. And, you know, it's, it's not like the banner that you're going to hang front and center. It's something you'll push off to the side. It'll collect dust. And, and, you know, the fans here, it's look, it's been 71 years and it, it's nice to be good and, and to be able to play in October every year. But I, I do think they've reached a point just along this, this winning arc where a lot of fans have said, can we please just go for the jugular and bring home a World Series and, and let's have a parade. And so because of that, you know, it, 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 it's, it's so weird again, like this is a good team. And yet in, in Cleveland, it's looked at as, you know, wake us up in October. And I think around the league and, and talking to other writers and stuff, it's like, man, lucky that you're in Yale Central. Because I, if this team was in the East last year, I don't think they're in the playoffs. I think they might be fourth, you know, even behind Tampa. So it's strange. I, I do think, though, that ownership is just steadfast in, in this is what the payroll needs to be at. You know, there's no exceptions to this. I do think they'll be able to swing another trade in July. They've done it the last few years. And that'll help them. And then that's one reason, too, is, is like you mentioned, I mean, they don't need to make that trade in the offseason because April, May, and June in the standings is inconsequential to them. You know, they know they're one of the two best teams in the division, and, and they're still the favorites ahead of Minnesota. So yeah. they just need to, to save up for, for July and, and make their trade then to, to get that piece that they hope gets them over the hump in October. Yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on it there, but in terms of performance against opponents outside the division, last year's AL Central was the second weakest division of all time. And of course, Cleveland did not have to play the one good team in the division. So they were playing incredibly weak competition. I mean, still major league teams, obviously, and you're playing other opponents outside the division too. So you can't get completely complacent, but do you attribute some of the malaise you're talking about and the failure to click to not having a real rival and not playing competition for about half the schedule? Yeah, I mean, I remember sitting in Yankee Stadium. It was the first or second weekend of May, and it was a it was a tie game. The Indians had just erased a five nothing deficit, and the ninth inning arrives, and the Yankees are coming to bat, and Alexi Ogando was on the mound for the Indians, and I'll never get over this. That's who Terry Francona had to just, all right, go out there riding or dying with this guy who peaked in like 2010. (laughs) And it's one thing to have a rough bullpen and to have to try to figure it out as the season unfolds. But the Indians didn't have reason to do that until July when they traded for Brad Hand and Adam Simber. And like they, they held Andrew Miller out a lot longer than he needed to be held out because why rush him back? You know, Cody Allen worked through a lot of problems. He just became so ineffective down the stretch. And, you know, I think they felt like once it got to late September, they could just flip a switch. And that's obviously not the case. And it didn't happen. And and I think they'll have learned from that. I think they need to just, like, prove to themselves. I think last year they just felt like, all right, we were a 102-win team the year before. You know, we have no competition in this division. So we'll just put it on cruise control. And we'll take ourselves off cruise control when it matters. I don't think you can do that. I, I really think you need to go through a season where, yeah, you want everyone rounding into form as the playoffs arrive, but you still need to prove to yourself that you can do it before you get there. And they never were able to do that last year. 
Well, one guy who has not had to prove that he can do it in quite a while, something of a subtle question, is Francisco Lindor, who I think gave everyone in baseball, not just Cleveland fans, a, a terrible scare by going down with an injury. Uh, it sounds like from camp that he is on his way back. What is the latest and greatest on Lindor? How soon do we get to enjoy everything that is Frankie? Yeah, it's possible opening day. He's starting to play in some of those backfield spring games that, you know, like he, he bats like every inning. You know, the ones where you can make up your own rules. But, I, you know, I think they never really thought – the timetable was seven to nine weeks. They thought he'd recover on the quicker side of that just because he's 25. He just has so much energy. He's always in the complex working out all day anyway. So it's possible opening day. The, the only thing is it's going to be freezing in Minneapolis on opening day. And it's going to be freezing when the Indians then go home to Cleveland for a week. And then when they leave Cleveland and head to Detroit. And so if, if they want to hold him out and, and be a little more cautious with him because some of those muscle injuries can be finicky in cold weather, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that and maybe held him out for a series or two. But I don't think it's going to be any more than that. I think he's, he's going to be, uh, I think he still has a chance to be in there on opening day. There aren't that many individual players to ask about on this roster because it's largely (laughs) the same roster as it was last year. We kind of know who these guys are, but I do want to ask about Danny Salazar because he is someone we did not see last year and he is trying to come back, trying to rehab from shoulder surgery. Seems like he's on track to return at some point this spring. That would be a, a boon to the bullpen, presumably. Is that how they would use him and is there any optimism that they'll actually get to? Yeah, they're always so hesitant to talk specifics with him just because, I mean, like you said, he didn't throw a pitch last year. And yet they still decided to, to tender him a $4.5 million contract when they could have just cut their losses. So it's weird, too, in, in an off season where everything was prided on, on cutting payroll and finding guys to move. And yet they hand $4.5 million to a guy who didn't throw a pitch last season and who's not going to be ready to throw pitches once opening day rolls around, it makes you scratch your head a little bit. I think the ideal scenario with him and what they're hoping for and, and maybe playing close to the vest but planning on is he starts slow. He's, I mean, he's nowhere near like throwing in games, spring training games or anything at this point. But I think he'll stay out in Arizona for a little bit. And then I think he will work his way back. And in their ideal mind, maybe in the second half of the season, he'll be a bullpen guy. And if he can still throw 98 and has that nasty split change, then that answers a lot of questions you might have about your bullpen. If you can just get him in there for an inning every two or three days, I think he could be a pretty valuable weapon. And I think they think that potential scenario was worth four and a half million dollars on a declining budget. I'm curious about another player on the team who is something of a known entity and has had a controversial offseason, let's put it that way. I'm always curious to hear when there are guys like Trevor Bauer on a roster who have a very large public persona, what the team's sort of general sense of them ends up being behind the scenes. And so to the extent that you can, how does the Cleveland front office feel about Trevor Bauer? I know that his online antics were used in his arbitration hearing as, you know, potential um, reason to dispute his salary. But, you know, there, there's an obvious economic motivation there in addition to whatever PR concerns the team is worried about. Where Where is Cleveland on Trevor Bauer right now? Are there other people like Trevor Bauer? <laughs> I guess that's a fair question. He is a he is a he may be truly unique. <laughs> yeah, it, you know. This is how long, how much time do we have? (laughs) You have the floor. It's interesting. I remember asking Chris Antonetti, the president of baseball operations at the winter meetings 
if he monitors Trevor Bauer's Twitter account. And Chris said, no, but the PR guy alerts me when I need to be alerted. And I said something like, how often does that happen? <laughs> and he said, well, I've been alerted at least once this off season. And that was back in December, you know, like the second week of December. I don't remember the timeline. I think like the really controversial stuff went down in January. So that hadn't happened yet. I know that the main Indians PR guy, you know, I think he cringes pretty often just at, and it's not even just Trevor. I, I don't envy guys or, or women in that position who have to monitor and stay on top of players, social media accounts all the time. And you're just so terrified of waking up one morning and seeing what your, one of your players said last night or, you know, and, and with Trevor Bauer, it's, there's no filter, although he'll say there's a filter because he'll say that if he's actually feeling emotional and wants to just unleash what he's thinking, he usually just calls his dad. He says everything on Twitter is measured and methodical. It's somewhat terrifying that there's an unplugged version. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, he's, he spent so much time on baseball in the off season, right? And he's obsessed with his craft and he, he creates a new pitch every off season. And he has all these ideas for what he wants to accomplish. He wants to win 300 games. He wants to, he wants to make 45 starts per season. He wants to sign these one-year contracts and he gives all this stuff so much thought and yet still has time to think about other things and to read all of his mentions on Twitter. The Indians and Bauer both know what the deal is. And Bauer has said he thought it made perfect sense for the Indians to dangle him or Kluber in trade talks over this winter, just knowing what the team's payroll situation was and, and knowing that the rotation was still strong and they had other holes to fill if they moved one of those guys. I think it's even more clear moving forward now that Kluber and Bauer are both still on the team in that the Indians, you know, it, it would make a lot of sense that they traded Trevor Bauer after this season. Um, I think Bauer's probably in line to earn between 15, 16 and, and $20 million in his last year of arbitration. They know he's not going to resign in Cleveland because the Indians aren't going to be the team that gives him one year and 45 million as he thinks is going to happen. So I think there's just, there's reality there where, you know, I think it's, it's a very odd marriage, a lot of visits to the principal's office. And it's, you know, it's just, they're realistic that this is probably has two years max remaining and maybe only one. So I want to ask about a couple other members of the rotation. Kluber is the very rare starting pitcher who still throws 200 plus innings every single year. And I wonder whether that is taking a little bit of a toll on him. It hasn't been quite as easy to get to that mark in the last couple of years. He had a back thing in 2017. He had a knee thing last year, lost a little bit of velocity, was still really excellent, of course. But are they thinking of easing up at all on him, especially because, as we've said, they don't really need him to throw all those innings in the regular season because it almost doesn't matter till you get to October? Yeah, I, I do think they're going to ease up on the accelerator a little bit with him. Especially the last two years, it's, it's gotten to like mid-September and he's, he's lost a little bit of velocity on that fastball. And then his postseason performance has certainly not gone as desired. So I do think they're going to just try to be creative, maybe use some off days creatively. He's also been the type of guy who lands on the injured list for like the minimum 10-day period and comes back. You know, he'll, he'll go on there midseason take two weeks off, come back and, and look refreshed. So there are advantages to, to using that 
um, in your favor. And, and I think they'll do that because yeah, he's thrown more innings than anybody over the last, what, five years, I think maybe mm-hmm. Scherzer has him, but that catches up with you at some point. And, and they, given the way the roster is constructed, they need that rotation to be probably the best in baseball. Yeah, and the guy on the other end of that rotation and and the age spectrum is Shane Bieber, who was rookie last year, and the ERA was not impressive, but there was a lot about his season that actually was pretty impressive, and so maybe you look at him as going to fill the the kind of Josh Tomlin spot and make more of it than Tomlin typically did. Yeah, he's he Bieber's fascinating. It's one thing you know you get to be around four other starters who have had so much success and to pick their brains, you have a resource in Bauer who, you know, can help you in so many different ways from showing you the right video to watch to, I mean, he just invents new pitches all the time. It's, it's, it's great when you can do that. And even someone like Mike Clevenger, who is similar in experience, he's a little bit older, but, but also has recently gone through, okay, here's my first year in the majors, got my feet wet. Now here's my second year in the majors and I'm proving that I belong in the rotation. And then last season, Clevenger said he wanted to throw 200 innings. He threw exactly 200 innings and now he's that established workhorse. So Bieber spent his off season working on his changeup. It's been incredible in spring training. He has not allowed a run. I think he's given up like three hits in 12 innings. He's always been a guy who doesn't walk anyone. His strikeout rate's pretty good. He, he can throw 93, 94. I mean, he's got all the tools. And to have him as your fifth best starting pitcher is a pretty nice luxury to have. So I just really remembered that Hanley Ramirez is on this team, which uh, was something of a surprise to me. How has he looked? Well, the lack of dreadlocks is probably the first takeaway. It's so hard to tell. This is, I don't envy evaluators and managers and with what they have to do in spring training, because you take this 35-year-old guy who was a pretty good hitter up until, I don't know, a year or two ago, and he hasn't, he played winter ball, but remember, he, the Red Sox cut sides with him in May last year, and he went home. He didn't play again. He said he'd try to get in shape and, and come back this year and prove himself. And so he's not going to play the field, so all he's going to do is take his three or four at-bats a game and you have to try to determine whether he's still has that bat speed, still has some strength, and can, can be worth a roster spot considering he's not going to play the field. So that's tough to do. Uh, I mean, he's, I, I think he's going to make the team. I have absolutely no earthly idea whether he'll last through the season, whether he'll last through May. We've seen the Indians do this all the time. Like Mike Napoli worked a couple years ago. Rajay Davis worked. Juan Uribe did not. And it's hard and and you're almost, you're almost doing this with a blindfold on and and just like trying to hit a pinata and maybe Hanley Ramirez will produce tons of candy, but he's 35 years old and his best days are certainly behind him. And, you know, it's just, it's a really hard thing to evaluate, especially since he's, he's really just a one tool player at this point. Another guy who isn't quite in the same age range, although he is creeping up there and in the final year of his deal with the Indians, uh, is Jason Kipnis, who I think is coming off, you know, a, a season that was better than his 2017 campaign, but probably still not quite where he wanted to be. Where is Kipnis right now? I know that they have the option for 2020, but in all likelihood, is this his last year with Cleveland and what might we expect from him? 
Yeah, he, for them to pick up that option, I think he'd have to be like the MVP. Um, he he, and he knows it's it's probably his last year in Cleveland. He's it's an interesting spot because he's had two consecutive years that were not up to his liking, and now the Indians don't have Michael Brantley, and they're going to be relying on a lot of young, unproven guys. They need Roberto Perez to hit, um, and so I I think the bottom line here is the Indians are banking on Jason Kipnis having a decent year. And Jason Kipnis needs to have a decent year if, if he's going to get another major league contract that he wants to take. So it's an interesting position. It's kind of like it could be a win-win if, if Kipnis plays well. If he doesn't, it's kind of frightening to think what that lineup might look like because you can rely on Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez and Carlos Santana, maybe Jake Bowers, but there's a lot of question marks beyond that. And, and they need Kipnis to not be a question mark. So it's tough. I mean, he's he came up with the Indians in 2011 and has had that just such a roller coaster ride where he was the young, athletic hustler and was a fan favorite during some of the darker times when the Indians were losing 90 games. And then the Indians started playing better and he was an all star and he almost won the World Series against his, his hometown team. And now the last two years, it's been rough and he's almost become like a punching bag with the fan base. And it's, you know, he'll even say, like, it sucks to be in that position, but he's also smart enough to know it's that it comes with the territory and he hasn't been producing. So I do think he would like to script a, a really nice closing chapter to his tenure in Cleveland. And it's just a matter of, does he still have those, some of those abilities that made him such a, a fun player to watch earlier in his career? All right. So we've come to our last question, which is always how many games will this team win in 2019? With the Indians, it feels almost beside the point, assuming the answer is more than the Twins. The specific number doesn't necessarily matter that much, and yet we must still ask and force you to name a number. Yeah, so this is so weird. The Indians, you guys can tell me better because you've been talking about every team. Are they the weirdest team in the league this year like because <laughs> this is this is a tricky question because like talent wise and you look up and down the roster in a in a neutral division you'd probably say what like mid 80s but knowing that they're going to beat up on the tigers and the royals and the white Sox, who they play 19 times piece that's going to inflate that win total a little bit but at mm-hmm. the same time it didn't really inflate it last year um, I know they didn't play very well outside the division, but it's not like they blew away the competition in the division either. I mean, they won 91 games in what you noted was the second worst division of all time. Mm-hmm. So it's a strange team to figure out, and it's a strange team to say, okay, this number of wins would be a successful regular season. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, so I'll say they win 89 games. I think the starting rotation has a chance to be historically good. It's been maybe the league's best rotation in the last couple of years anyway. And I really think Shane Bieber is due for an emergence here. I just have absolutely no concept of what to make of the lineup and really the bullpen. And that's two thirds of the equation. So I'll say 89. And will you and Jose Ramirez have a Mario Kart rematch? I hope so. You know, selfishly though, for the story, (laughs) the fact that I was, I was beating him and surprising him with my adequacy and yeah. then he came back to beat me on the final lap of the final race. It's almost like the perfect way to just leave it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe we'll have to, I, I also heard he invites minor leaguers over to his place during spring training to play MLB The Show and just waxes the floor with them and then sends them on their merry way. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I think that that worked out well. You you had a credible showing and you didn't embarrass yourself and maybe that is the best place to leave it. Yeah, like if I would have beaten him, well then it, it removes the aura of Jose Ramirez being this right. Mario Kart legend. And and then there's there's nowhere for me to go after that. So <laughs> I think it played out the way it was supposed to play out. Yeah, that's like the the Spink Award. It's either that or beating Jose Ramirez in Mario Kart. That's the top of your profession. (laughs) All right, you can read Zach's coverage of the Indians and possibly Mario Kart all season long at The Athletic. You can also find him on Twitter at his name, Zach Meisel. Zach, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me. Okay, and we'll be back after just one more quick break to talk to James Vegan of The Athletic about the White Sox. We can go topic from topic whenever I drop it try to stop it in other words what the brother heard he tried to catch it but what occurred was too much weight for one brain to take try to concentrate maintain and elevate for gram to ounce to pound to pound the matter of weight can't hold my mind down permanent damage i do away with no time for fun because i don't play with competitors it's only one when i'm done competition is none right so we are back and we are now joined by white Sox reporter for the athletic chicago james vegan how's it going james going all right all right you are coming to us from the media room at white Sox spring training where you just talked to rick renteria i want to ask you a bit about a player who is not in white Sox camp before we talk to you about players who are manny machado is very far from where you are right now only like 15 minutes Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) figuratively far. There's a a big distinction between those two locations. So is there just like an empty locker between John Jay and Yonder Alonso where they're just sitting around wishing that they were joined by their friend and family member? What was the, it seemed like the White Sox were like seriously bummed about not landing Machado. So to what extent did that derail their offseason plans or rebuild plans? There wasn't at the locker. It was filled by Irvin Santana. So <laughs> okay. at least from that aspect, they're whole again. I don't think Yonder and uh, John Jay are too bothered by it. I think the only people that were really super bummed out the day it happened were uh, Rickon and Kenny Williams. But I, uh, I think it kind of takes all this. You take Manny Machado like out of this lineup and you kind of throw it into a projection system, look at every position, and it takes a lot of the – optimism and they're a step closer to playoff reality away from this roster because if you don't have Manny Machado and you don't have Eloy Menes and if there's not much that stands out to you it's a lot of pitchers that have been inconsistent and even if they're late in talent their projections kind of show why they're basically projecting to be below average and, and there's kind of a, a lineup that's still missing anything resembling like a a core and it's not really carried by a Yohan Mankata that's, that's broken out yet or anything like that. So it has definitely t- turned my uh, Twitter mentions and comments to a constant tire fire. So we'll see how the <laughs> fan enthusiasm kind of continues for a season that probably is only marginally upgraded from a, a hundred loss campaign, uh, at least looking at the immediate major league uh, group. I guess one question I have about that is when I look at our projections at Fangrass for what the White Sox are supposed to do right now, we have them projected for 70 wins and Cleveland for 92. And obviously signing Machado closes some of that gap. And I'm going to ask you to wildly speculate, but signing Machado on its own would 
you know, would have helped a lot and might have put them in a conversation that they're not in right now. But were there, did you, did you sense that there were other moves that would have, you know, maybe been made on the back of a Machado signing that are then off the table and seen as not particularly useful given the rest of the roster right now? Or were they hoping that they were going to sign Machado and then look at, you know, potential upside from some of these guys who haven't broken out yet and say, hey, maybe that gets us to a wild card or maybe Cleveland stumbles a little bit? Not really. Uh, I don't think like it would have drastically changed their mode. I mean, obviously it couldn't since the signing process took like four months and uh, <laughs> if they were going to make kind of a, a, a push to make themselves kind of a wild card contender, they would have had to done it even while they were still chasing him. I, I think it probably would have just melt, met, made another rebuilding season a, a lot more positive and, and still like it was going in the right direction. Uh, they could sell 75 wins a lot better when you have your kind of in-house superstar and you have Eloy and, and Cease kind of coming up uh, in the middle of the season much more than he can sell, probably being just maybe even a little bit better than last year for the first three or four months of the season, but not much. And, and still, I mean, the reason I would say this team is still in the bottom of the division is, is, is pitching, and I don't think that was really going to get six either way, and it didn't seem like they were willing to do that on any level with any kind of starters that are available. They, they kind of poo-pooed the, the long-term starting pitching market and frankly, probably I would too, outside of Patrick Corbin, which they didn't seem players on at any point in time. I don't think you, you sign kind of Dallas Keuchel with kind of declining peripherals for a group that isn't ready yet and have them basically go downhill by some 2020 after. So I, I think it was just, it would have been a Band-Aid on a, situa- on a wound that is not healed yet and still wouldn't be expected to heal before 2020. Yeah, you mentioned another player who will not be on the White Sox on opening day, but unlike Machado, will be at some point pretty soon after. So L.A. Jimenez, it was announced what we all expected, that he would start the season in the minors. It seems like he is not particularly upset about this, but what is the team's stated rationale when it comes to why he can't be a major leaguer on opening day? What is the excuse for what he has to work on? I Well, he gave him kind of the, the built-in excuse of like hitting 150 in spring training, so, yeah, but I don't <laughs> think even they kind of really stamp that as being, oh, he clearly didn't perform. I mean, it, it's obvious that he can perform. He, he hit with like power and tilted like a 350 batting average while striking out under 15% of the time in AAA. Like, I don't think you can really make many quibbles about the readiness of his, his batter. It's something he needs to show in Cactus League and, and 25 plate appearances. So I, I, they just they obviously can't say the real reason, but I don't say there's – I mean, they definitely stamped out defense as something he d- needed to do when they spoke about last August, but it's more just, I, I felt this spring, they weren't going to really spend too much time pushing out something that was, you know, demonstrably false or uh, clearly uh, kind of just a, a front. But I, it's just, at the same time, they're not speaking openly about service time because that would be a kind of direct violation of the, the spirit of the agreement and, and not something they want to engage in, or I, they definitely didn't see the path of the twins with Brian Buxton as something that they wanted to follow in terms of frankness or uh, brazenness uh, mm-hmm. about their motivations. But I, I think everybody covering it, and I think Eloy included, as much as he's not going to make a public think about it in any real way beyond maybe liking Colin McHugh's tweet on Twitter about it. <laughs> uh, every, everyone knows what's going on here. Uh, no one really likes it, and uh, but they decided they're going to deal with the blowback of it because it, the, the precedent has been set more than a number of times. 
When he does arrive, what sort of impact do you expect him to make? Because I think we've all sort of gotten spoiled by young hitters coming up and just immediately laying waste to the league. And he is a little less young than some of them, than the Acunas and Sotos. He's 22, and he was just so polished seemingly last year in the high minors that it seems like he very much could be the type of guy who just walks onto the roster and is immediately a star level player. So is that what we're going to see? What position do you expect him to play? And is he an all around guy or is he more of a, a bat first player? I'll tell you that after watching Ron Mankata strike out 20, 217 times last year, I have not grown spoiled by the idea of uh, <laughs> yeah. young players immediately coming That's up. That's true. And White crushing. Sox fans are the exception, I think, yeah. So I definitely kind of am trying to pump the brakes a little bit on the expectations for him. I mean, he's not super young, but he's 22. And, and you know, and up until last year, we probably thought there was more substantial swing and miss in his game, that he was going to be a more traditional modern power hitter who struck out over 20% of the time. That probably, I feel like that's the likely thing to really expect for him on the major league level, at least initially, until he adjusts a bit more. And I kind of want to slide the expectation down to the lower portion of like an 800 something OPS because that just seems reasonable, especially since, I mean, not that this spring training was meaningful about his skill set, but it did serve as some reminder that he's mortal. It's not immediately just going to be Miguel Cabrera fully formed uh, upon arrival. I expect that, you know, after he arrives in late April, that he's going to maybe morph into more what we've expected in the second half. But as far as being, I've heard like, heard like expectations, 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 player initially in the, in the first season. I, I don't think that's reasonable, especially because, you know, I, as much as we laugh off defense being uh, an issue for him, he is going to be a left fielder and probably not a particularly great one defensively. So I, I don't know what the, the metrics are going to read from or what, you know, hinky things about the White Sox shading or, or spacing or having Adam Engel rob balls from him is going to do for his defensive metrics. But I, I don't expect them to be especially strong. I, I, you know, he kind of does one thing super well, but what he does is extremely and safe. And I think he'll probably just be a, a nice two to three win player as a year and, and maybe his second year as well, depending on how his defense really translates. Another bat in the system that has, you know, came into much fanfare and then has had some questions raised about it, especially given his performance last year was Nick Madrigal, who was understood to be one of the better college bats in the 2018 class, although had injury concerns. And I'm curious what you've seen from him this spring. I think there's been optimism that as the injuries sort of dissipate, that there might be a turnaround, especially uh, in his power. But how, how has Madrigal looked and what are the internal expectations around him right now? You know, the most power I saw from him was probably in January in the Dominican Republic when someone talked him into a home run contest and he he was trying to like actively pull the ball. Uh, he did not hit a home run, but mostly I'm still seeing the same kind of uh, spraying the ball type of guy and someone who's working right field a lot. It was hard to really get a good feel for him over like kind of the scant playing time other than me just, you know, picking up the notion that he's possibly the most intense player I've ever covered in terms of being legitimately bumped out by spring training losses. You know, I, I think the expectation for him is to be being fully removed from his, his wrist fracture. I want to say like February of last year, that there's going to be more uh, pull power and there's going to be, he's going to just, he's going to be so smart and polished that he's going to take that when it, it's given to him. because he showed the ability to, to go to right field so frequently last year that maybe he'll see more pitches inside and it'll just kind of naturally come to him. I haven't heard a lot of concern. I, I there, There's a tremendous amount of faith that he just is a smart enough hitter that things will come to him and they don't really have to worry about him and make any kind of mechanical adjustment. I mean, he, you know, 
even something that you know Eric Longenhagen said uh, a lot is that there was a lot of uh, you know ability to pull when he had the opportunity afforded to him in his college swing before he got hurt. So. I, I'm expecting the bounce back pretty strongly. So we could probably spend the rest of the segment just asking you about White Sox players or prospects who have not fully performed up to what we all <laughs> thought they would. So, I mean, is that a trend? Like, is it a worrisome thing that you look at their player development and you say maybe they're a bit behind in that area or there's some sort of systemic problem there? Or is that possibly premature? I want to say premature just because their player development has kind of gone through I mean, they hired Chris Getz right at the start of the rebuild, which seemed like a purposeful move to when the minor league development is going to become more important than ever that they pick somebody who, you know, pretty clearly has been doing stuff to modernize it a lot. You know, I probably heard about pitchers talking about TrackMan data and adjusting their arsenals in response to it more last year than any point before that. And, uh, you know, I saw Rapsodo's uh, on all the bullpen uh mounds or you know not actually on the mound that's not where you put it but you get the point it, it seems like they've been doing i mean all that stuff is stuff that everyone in the league is doing but i think the white Sox probably care of the old school reputation that they were behind everybody and it seems like he's been doing a lot of stuff to try to uh drag them back to the middle of the pack or, or, or in, in, he's in step with everybody else mm-hmm. i think the major thing is seeing prospects get hurt is, is probably what the thing that's causing the most angst uh, and that seems real and is probably removing a lot of the margin of error that they probably seem to have and accept when they just ripped off a bunch of trades in 2017 uh, that seemed like they were geared towards acquiring as much of the current MLB pipeline top 100 as they could at the moment. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not something, at least for me as a, as a writer who wants to be very measured about it, it's not something I would ring the alarm bells at right now just because I see it kind of in a transformative process and maybe still a year or two out from where I draw like a sweeping conclusion, like they don't do this well. I, I've certainly heard even recently, uh, you know, people say that they're antiquated or that they're behind the times, but at the same time, and I can't compare them to, to other organizations super well, but from my standpoint, it seems like it's something that's modernizing in, in real time a lot. I think, you know, one place we might see that modernization lining up with uh, players' timelines would be around Kopech, who clearly is not going to be pitching uh, this year, but we'll see again in 2020. What's the latest on his rehab? I saw you tweeting earlier that he's throwing from 75 feet, I think you said. Where where is he at and when, I guess, are they expecting him to come back? And have there been any setbacks in that rehab or is he still doing all right? There have been no setbacks. He is doing well. The only like thing they do is to get him to stop saying kind of like bold things like, you know, I think I could probably pitch in September and stuff like that. <laughs> they, from the, like, the standpoint, like the moment like the, the MRI came in, they're like, well, he's not pitching all of 2019. And I, I don't expect him to like really waver from that. I mean, Zach Verdi, who I think for the UCL June, July of 2017, they really super cautiously had him in, in complex ball like for a month last season, but there was just never any kind of idea that they would ever push it. And they have no reason to push it. They don't sure. need help so much as like they're too far away for any kind of help or uh, and any rushing of Kopech to make any difference. So he's throwing from 75 feet, which he said I don't, that's not going to sound like very far, but you know, for me, I can't imagine throwing 75 feet uh, on the fly, but for him, uh, someone who's like kind of intensely and hyper competitive as he is, that's a, that's, 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 that's an example of him having the rain put on him. Uh, whereas that he would probably shake off and he'd probably push to, you know, pitch by the middle of the season if he could, I guess it's encouraging 
that he doesn't feel like there's been some setbacks or he doesn't feel you know like he's not building up the strength that he, he needs to have but there's no way that they're ever letting him touch a, a get on a mound before spring training next year given the rest of that rotation james i wouldn't sell yourself short they might need you to throw some innings <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, I guess we've put off the Lucas Giolito question as yep. long as we possibly could. <laughs> I, I know that you wrote recently about some mechanical changes that Giolito has made. I would say that some changes probably warranted after last season, which was about as bad a full season as you could have. I think I was surprised even when I went and saw that, oh, he made 32 starts. He really was just out there every time, just kind of pitching through it. So where is Giolito? Giolito right now? Is he looking any different? Is he doing anything different? Is he going to be better than he was, which is not a high bar to clear? I mean, yeah, he looks, di- I mean, he looks different a lot. Like I could probably write an article every week last year with Lucas about what he was doing because he's always making an adjustment and he was always yeah. super articulate about it. And he was always very confident about how it was going to help him. And, you know, given the fact that he wasn't having good results, like, why would he be sticking with what he's doing? And, you know, the same thing could happen for this offseason. You know, I showed his delivery to a scout, and they're like, oh, I don't like that. That leaks velocity, you know, that's sacrificing, you know, velocity and stuff for command. If you're Lucas G. Leo, why wouldn't you make that kind of risk? Because you didn't have command at all last year. So it doesn't matter if you can hit 95 uh, with a longer motion, but he, he just shortened up his arm action kind of in both ways and just not you know, shooting his glove hand out at all uh, for momentum and also not reaching back. And, you know, the first game I saw him, he got all the way up to 97, which is great. He also had Mitch Haniger barrel 96 to the wall, uh, throwing it as hard as he could. So it, 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 it hasn't, just like kind of with Carson Fulmer, who's someone who talked about going to driveline all that and changing all their things, like it, it sounded very good. And, you know, given how they've been spinning their wheels, like the last, years that it made all the sense in the world to pursue something something that would find some sort of level of comfort but as far as spring training as much as i don't want to base it on spring training as much as it'd be great to, to see them come out and immediately dominate it wouldn't necessarily mean anything the results have been kind of wishy-washy and i don't really know what to make of them even a, a pitching coach if, if i were an experienced pitching coach sent my ways saying there's only one right way to do things uh, i don't think i could really stamp a firm conclusion on whether or not the changes Lucas made made or were good or not. He seems to love them and is very confident in them, but we'll see. He obviously needed to do something and and he has, but I I can't speak to whether it's going to work or not because everything is just kind of muddled. So my roommate is a White Sox fan and she often jokes, I told her that we were doing this today and she said, you should tell him to lie about how the rebuild is going like you lie to me about it so that I can enjoy baseball. And I'm not going to ask you to lie and I am going to ask you to like start grading something long before it's done. But what is your general take on sort of the state of how this has gone and is going? Because obviously, um, you know, the expectation is not that the White Sox will win anything of any significance this year, um, but that some of this stuff will clear up some of these prospects that have so far disappointed may, you know, turn a corner and some of the young guys they've recently drafted might help. So if if you were having to assess this this rebuild today versus maybe where you thought about it when they first made that big series of trades, where are you putting them? Huh. So like I think right after the Eloy trade, which I think is probably universally graded as being very good and and probably the best deal that they 
they pulled off, you know, getting Cease and, and Eloy for uh, Jose Quintana. That was probably when it seemed like this is extremely well-managed rebuild that's using more, uh, you know, proven major league talent for their base for trading for prospects than any other rebuild. So this is like a bigger and better, stronger uh, rebuild than any other, than maybe something we've seen before. From that, when it was probably an A, I probably uh, lost 30, 40% of, uh, of confidence. I mean, but it, it's, it's also, I mean, hard to say. I mean, the first two drafts if they're, of the rebuild, if that was kind of like Zach Collins and Jake Berger, who have kind of dealt, and, and Zach Birdie, who, you know, Birdie's gone down with TJ, Jake Berger's turned, torn his Achilles, you know, twice, and, and Zach Collins was probably, you know, at the time was controversial if they thought he could catch, and, and they probably haven't fully dismissed that, even if he's reaching AAA this year. But those, you know, in, in honesty, weren't really the, the two most important drafts of the, this period. The, the most important one is Nick Madrigal, which I, at least personally, I'm still a, a heavy believer that they got a foundational piece in him, and this coming one where they're going to pick third overall. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think the largest thing I would say is that it's not the greatest, like, prospect group of all time. It's not even the top system in the game right now. It's really something that success is dependent on how well it can successfully augment it with spending and you know, the, the budget that they uh, or the low payroll they've created by slashing their, the, the team to, to the studs like they have. And I think it's there where they've struck out that's most disconcerting and missing on a really the guy who in free agency who would miss the fit their uh, rebuild best. And, 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 and by the way, they did so by not losing out on the just guarantees thus casting doubt on how effective they will be you know next year and the year after that i think it's there where that that's where i start really questioning how it's going to work and, and how effective it will be and that's probably where i, I would slide down to like the, the low b's or, or the c's obviously they can fix it as soon as uh next off season but i, I think it's really the kind of the follow-through you know i think there's still a, a good starter kit or a good prospect base to build a contender through uh, where you have finishing pieces through free agency or, or even still leveraging some of these prospects uh, for trades. I mean, they've, they've got a glut of outfielders that they can probably deal from to do, do some interesting stuff. But uh, it's, I've, I know I'm being wishy-washy and that's the danger of beat writers is that they, they see all sides and, and can't reach a, a firm take, but it's an incomplete and it's trending in a bad direction because the doubt about their ability to, to, to finish it off in free agency. I'm not yet finished with my laundry list of players. I want to ask, how about this guy? Is this guy going to be good? Because uh, I am Let's wondering. Yeah. So Yoan Mankata, obviously he has been good in some ways and he could be much better and he shows signs of being capable of being much better and so if the White Sox are going to take that step forward it still seems like Mankata must or probably will play a big part in that he's still only 23 years old he obviously has power he takes walks although he also leads the league in strikeouts so is he going to put things together and just break out at some point? Or is he, do you think, at this point, just going to be kind of a pretty good, exciting, but flawed player? Probably more the latter. They're, they're really happy with kind of the mechanical tweaks they made with him uh, over the course of the season as far as swing and not cutting himself off of the zone. And they really just think that, you know, the, the taking the, the large strikeout thing is just kind of a mentality switch you need to make about being more aggressive on uh you know pitches on the outside corners you know he struck out looking 
around 30 more times in baseball. I think second place was Chris Davis. And, you know, that's someone you probably don't want to be striking out many more times then. But, and I think there's some gradual improvement that's going to happen this year, but I, I at least, and again, the danger of reaching conclusions from spring training, I don't see that mentality that's just changing overnight. I mean, it's something he's been asked about a lot, about being more aggressive and, and giving himself a chance and fighting balls off on the edges and getting used to the fact that major leaguers can command the edges and not just taking every pitch and, and taking countless strike threes and, and letting his incredible physical gifts kind of be more impact uh, in his at-bats. And I just don't see it with switch flicking. I mean, I could be wrong. You could it could happen really quickly this year, but it, it seems like he's always going to be just a very borderline passive guy at the plate. And I think it will gradually get better a little bit, but for me, I've reset, and especially with third base and, and taking away a little bit of the, uh, you know, the positional value of him. I, I, I set my expectations more to uh long-term above average major leaguer who uh, probably is frustrating because you want him to, you see how much better he could be if he was, he could leverage his athletic tools just a little bit better. It, it, I, you can't really entirely junk the, you know, that kind of conservative plate approach because as you said, I mean, it comes with a 10% walk rate and that's a big part of how he's providing value at this point. I don't, I don't know. The trick to unlock everything doesn't seem very, very simple, but at the same time, uh, you know, I was just looking at the projections the other day he was like the most valuable position player, even with all the flaws he currently has. So, yeah, he, he's still pretty important. If you could just like blend Tim Anderson and Yohan Mankata somehow, is that like, could you do some kind of lab experiment where maybe you you take some of the conservative swinging approach from one of them and the, the aggressiveness from the other one and somehow you would end up with a player who makes more contact and also takes walks and is really good? Does that make sense? You would also have someone who hits lefties like Tim Anderson does and hits righties like Yon Makata does. So that would just be one effective infielder. Unfortunately, beyond Madrigal, they don't really have a lot of middle infield prospects. So I don't think they can really <laughs> afford to do that. Yeah. How about Carlos Rodon? Because I keep expecting him to have a really solid season and that hasn't quite happened yet either. I don't know. I mean, I mean, last year, the strikeout rate was a career low. So that's not good. And it's coming off a of shoulder surgery and it's, coming with a lot more instances. Like, he's always been a guy who's strangely ratcheted up his velocity over the course of games. And that's kind of a cool trait, especially for guys who you know, pitch in eight innings. And it's something he says is not his control. It's not something that's as cool when it's like 88 in the first. I mean, yeah. it's weird that he gets up to 96 later, but it, it probably creates some vulnerabilities for him. For him, uh, it's always been uh, about kind of harnessing the the stuff uh, with kind of shaky command and and how much he can kind of get away with that. And his walk rate last year, I think, was still uh, you know up there, despite kind of you know thinking that he'd been through some refinement at this point. You know, he got chased from a a, a start at the end of last season in the second inning by Minnesota, and kind of you know an objectively awful result. But you know, just kind of looking at on video the other. The other week, he was still, you know, getting swings and misses with his high fastballs that were running up in the high, mid-90s. He was still had the absolute wipeout slider. He had basically all the tools that you thought he had coming out of draft day for a guy who could be uh, a, a, probably a number two, number three starter. So it, it doesn't seem like at the same time, like one time you just look at his strikeout rate uh, going down and him being right off a of soldier surgery and you think like, oh, this guy's just going downhill. He's not going to restore his previous uh, level performance, but the stuff seems like it's still there. I just don't haven't seen the the command leap, and 
all the optimism is that not having to go through rehab or all the stuff he's been doing the last two years is that he's finally going to be able to, to work on his game uh, in a way he hadn't. Like he, he complained that he couldn't throw his, uh, his slider for strength to sl- set up his wipeout one later in the count. And basically being in shoulder rehab, he couldn't throw a slider at all. That was the kind of last thing he's allowed to do. So now that he's able to throw normally, he's able to work on it and maybe get the command going out a little bit more than he would, you know, when he's going through a, a rehab program. But I don't know. I mean, obviously there's not really the full season of track record of him kind of, you know, walking, you know, well under 8% of guys to, to show that there, there is that uh, next level of control in there and he has to show it. And this is kind of the season where we'll find out if this, this is something to, to expect a, a top of the rotation starter from or, or not. Okay, it's my turn for a what about this guy question. So, so Dylan Cease, what about that guy? Because I, I know that his velocity had sort of ticked up and people are optimistic about that, but that some of the, you know, control issues still exist. So w- where's Dylan at these days? Minorly camp? <laughs> Not in a literal sense, in a, you know, uh, how important is this individual going to be to the future, uh, you know, mental happiness of my roommate? He is immensely important because you got Kopech and you got Cease, and from there I see a bunch of back-end starter prospects. So sure. if they really miss on either one of them, they're not probably going to have a strong rotation, maybe more like a brewer's rotation or like a rotation that is serviceable and, and, and provides a use and gets you to your bullpen without tragedy, but is not something that, you know, is the powering engine of a contender. And I think it, uh, that's very dependent on Kopech and Cease, which is kind of why you're at a point of anxiety right now in White Sox camp is the top three pitching prospects are Kopech, Cease, and Dunning. And, you know, Kopech is doing TJ rehab. Dane Dunning is going to see Dr. James Andrews on Monday. And Dylan Cease is a guy where if that's the healthiest prospect, you know, that's a guy who's had TJ and, uh, you know, had his 2017 season shut down for shoulder soreness. So it's a kind of an anxious moment. There's a lot riding on Dylan, and that's why the season that Dylan had last year was like basically, you know, Eloy aside, kind of the bright spot of the entire White Sox organization is that he emerged from being a guy who's just like, oh, he has good raw stuff. He could, his ceiling is enormous. You know, who knows if he'll reach it to being, you know, this is legit one of your best starting pitching prospects or who are one of the best in the game. You know, everything I've seen from him looks amazing. Uh, I saw him Winston Salem in May and he was, hit 99 out of 100 pitches of the game and, and throwing 25 change-ups for a guy who was not supposed to have any kind of change-up, you know, the year before. It, it, it looks incredibly good to me. And he found James Shield, his last act of the history of tossing to the side and not signed him, even though he threw in 200 innings last year, was he taught Dylan Cease a, a curveball grip by proxy through Dane Dunning. And, and that has given him something that has more depth and, and, and he's able to throw for a strike and he's even working on a slider for purposes unknown just because I think this organization likes sliders a lot. It seems like he has all the ability at the same time. When I talk to scouts, they're still skeptical about, you know, just the command because he used to be a guy you could literally see like kind of a load up hitch in his delivery. And that just screamed reliever to everybody out the, out the gate. It's smoothened out. You could probably, if you have seen it before, you can probably still retrace its presence in his game, but it's, it's definitely something that's become a lot more fluid and a lot more, lot less than two pieces. He seems like somebody on the upward trend. At the same time, he's, he's, he's a guy who's basically been tagged as like, oh, great stuff, but probably a reliever for his entire life. And he's somebody with extensive injury history. So there's risk there. Talking to him in person, he seems like he's really on the right path and has a good head on his shoulders. But watching him, he, he seems electric. But 
it, it, it has to be proven uh, again and again before uh, he, he really is someone who has unanimous appeal in, in the scouting community. All right, last one. Yonder Alonso, not just Manny Machado's brother-in-law, also a baseball player in his own right. You weren't covering him last season, but I am very curious about what you think the explanation is for what happened to him because he kind of did this flowers for Algernon type thing where he wasn't very good and then he remade himself and he became very good and Dave Cameron called him the poster boy of the flyball revolution and then he went back to being exactly as good or not so good as he had been before. So what are the prospects for him to regain what he was a couple of years ago? I asked him about this. I mean, when you talk to players, you're kind of like trying to take stuff from like Fangraphs or MLB Savant and kind of sneak it in in a way where it's in the normal baseball language that they'll respond to and not something that will make their eyes glaze over. Whereas Yonder was the exact opposite. And I'm kind of like asking general concepts and getting very general answers. And then we kind of like touch on exit velocity. He's like, oh, yeah, I mean, like my, I was only a mile per, mile per hour down last year. Yeah. And, you know, my launch angle was around the same. And I was basically the same guy. And, you know, going back to the old DeAndre Alonso, the guy who hit, who couldn't hit 10 home runs in a season and was very just, uh, you know, average dependent, whereas he, he was still kind of a similar guy. You know, he's still in the 20 home run range. He was still... I don't remember exactly what his launch angle was, but he was still fly ball oriented. It just, he, he got kind of had this just hellacious slump at the, the end of last season. And, you know, he didn't really get into like anything specific about what was going on, but he just, he reiterated that he felt like he was pretty much the same person that he was just a little bit off and he just had bad luck, but that the kind of foundational uh, switch in his game, the kind of figuring out how to tap into his power. I mean, he, he talked to him as clearly a, a guy who's built to, to hit for power he, he's not just like a wiry single hitter by any means he still feels like that major switch that happened in oakland is is, is present and he was somebody that i, I think uh you know drc metric was like super i, I don't know if i'm so sincere on fangrass podcast was like so super weirdly optimistic about in terms of just like the quality of his contact uh compared to uh you know what his actual results looked at last year so Basically, the, the, the overriding theory with him is that nothing is wrong and he had a slump that's entirely something that he can push away and go back to being probably not a superstar first baseman or an all-star level first baseman, but, but someone uh, a, a above average uh, offense. And, you know, in, in this White Sox offense, looking around the lineup, that's not something that they can sneeze off, even if it's someone it's you know, not necessarily exciting production for a first base DH timeshare guy that he's going to be in. And maybe even somebody who... Uh, they don't really have anybody who could help them, uh, you know, platoon off of lefties, but probably that's the theoretical, you know, best setup for them is if they did have somebody like that, which they don't. All right. So we've come to the obligatory last question. How many games will the White Sox win in 2019? Not many. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like, <laughs> I was, I was like, skeptical this morning and wanted to lean towards 68 and then you guys told me the projection was like 72 so now i want to like want to be met more towards 70 stick to your guns yeah have the courage of your convictions man <laughs> yeah what are the i don't now? have any convictions like the wind blows <laughs> one direction while i'm on the backfields and uh, my mind changes <laughs> okay so you're going with 70 i'm going with 70 and 92 i thought they were trending towards 70 last season and then they kind of i think they lost like something like 10 out of 11 just brutal blowouts lifeless 
clubbings in Minnesota while Joe Maurer got standing ovations yeah. to, to knock them down to 100 losses. So I, I feel like they're probably a little bit better than that level of team that seemed like they were probably more towards 66, 67 wins before the bottom just fell out. Mm-hmm. Well, on the bright side, White Sox fans get to listen to Jason Benetti every day this season. So that's something. He might not be calling many wins, but uh, that will make the losses more pleasant. Yeah, I mean, they got Sox math trivia questions. So it's basically like winning the World Series. <laughs> right. And you also get to read James. So you can find his writing at The Athletic all season long. You can find him on Twitter at JRFegan. James, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And Meg, thank you. I will talk to you presumably this time next week. Sounds good. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to keep the podcast going. Matt G. Hall, Benjamin Chamberlain, Andrew Ferry, Zach Sheffield, and Darren Fessel. Thanks to all of you. If you're feeling generous in other ways, I know this is just about March Madness season, or so I have heard. And for the second consecutive year, I want to tell you about a charity that was started by two Effectively Wild listeners and Patreon supporters, actually, Lex Rofberg and Sydney Kusher. Sydney emailed me this week to remind me. The charity is called Connecting Champions, and basically if you're planning to do a March Madness bracket, you can do it for charity. So there's an Effectively Wild pool, as there was last year, that benefits kids with cancer. You make a bracket, and the pot gets donated to help the kids. The nonprofit, again, is called Connecting Champions, and it asks kids with cancer, what do you want to be when you grow up, and connects them with a mentor. So they've connected kids with with baseball scouts and ghost hunters. There's an Effectively Wild team which ranked 22nd in the country last year. I'm sure you all can do better this year. So if you go to marchtofriendship.com, you can find the Effectively Wild pool on there. I will link to that and also to Sydney's Facebook post about this. So just a nice thing you can do if you're planning to make a bracket anyway. Might as well make your bracket for a good cause. You can join the aforementioned Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Sam and Meg via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book, The MVP Machine. The text, I believe, is now locked, so it's final, so I know exactly what you're going to get. If you'll like it when it comes out later this spring, we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and Sam and I will talk to you next time. Go when you go real far. Into the white